0: Well, turn with me in the book of Acts. Today we're in the second chapter of Acts. We read the first 21 verses together last time, talking about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the church in those early days. The birth of the church had taken place. It was the day of Pentecost. You recall the details of that wonderful fulfillment of an Old Testament feast that had been given to the children of Israel so many years before was now, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, specifically fulfilled by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. It was a feast of first fruits, and there was, indeed, a first fruits harvest, which we will see as we read further on in the text today. But it's more than that. It's more than just the birth of the church. It's a wonderful thing to see what God is doing in the lives of those who are willing to hear. There's an open door being presented in these passages that we have been looking at and we will be continuing to look at. And that open door was opened by the Lord Himself. And He has made it so that all of what we are experiencing today and all of what the church has always been involved with throughout its history that has, of course, been in line with God's Word have been wonderful, exciting, and perfect in every way. Because God was in it. Now, that's not to say the church has been perfect. I jokingly admit that on this day, this first day of the existence of the church, the church was as close to perfect as it ever has been. After that first day, it went downhill. And it went downhill pretty quickly. Just read through the epistles and read through the commentaries. You see all the various things that did happen that were not supposed to happen in the church. And in this book of Acts, Luke doesn't withhold any of that. It's like what we call the warts that appear on our skin. God reveals the warts as well, the blemishes, as well as that which is beautiful. The church is a beautiful thing, but we have to realize we're not perfect. None of us are, none of us have been. None of the church has been except for perhaps on that first day when they first realized what God was doing and they all came together because it tells us very clearly over and over again they were together with one accord. What does that mean? We talked about that the last time too. That means that there were no arguments. There were no disputes. There were no disparities. There were no issues that had to be dealt with because they were all together in agreement, in unity, in love. They all had a common cause. They were committed to it. That's the beauty of the birthing of the church of Jesus Christ. It started out well. And it wants to be seen among the world around us as that which God intended. By the Holy Spirit, it can happen. We need to get out of His way in order for it to happen. But when we do submit ourselves to the teachings of the apostles, to fellowshipping with one another, to breaking of bread together, and to prayer, by the way, those four things will be mentioned by Luke in this passage that we'll be looking at, and we'll talk about them in a few moments. Those are essential aspects of how we can become what God wants us to be, if we're not already there. And I submit to you that most of us would have to say, no... This work to be done in each of our lives. Well, let's find out from reading the Word of God just exactly what it is that perhaps we should be doing in order to get to that place where God wants us to be as a holy priesthood, a royal nation, a peculiar people. Those are the descriptions of the church that we all should abide by and seek to become like what God intended. Verse 22 of the second chapter of Acts speaks... The Apostle Peter has already demonstrated that what they had just witnessed was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that had been prophesied by Joel the prophet. And again, we need to understand what Peter is doing is he's using Scripture as a biblical basis for the event that has just taken place. And Peter wanted the people around him in that place in Jerusalem during that special Jewish feast that they were celebrating, that God was in this thing. And the way that he proved it was through the Word of God. And he continues to do so as he now focuses from this understanding of what just took place, the filling of saints on the day of Pentecost, where they saw and heard such remarkable things. Now he brings it home. In this latter part of chapter 2, we see Jesus' being focused upon instead of the Holy Spirit. He started with the Spirit of God because that's what had just taken place. But he says, this has happened in order for you to understand that this is what God wants you to hear, that this is what God wants you to see, that this is what you should be embracing if you are to believe in what God is doing in the world. Even in our day, that is exactly what is important to all of us. Understand, we need the Spirit of God to open our eyes and ears to His truth. So before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time together. We ask, O Lord, that You would indeed open our ears to Your truth. Let our hearts, O Lord God, be filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let Your peace be upon us. Let Your love Lord God, minister to each one. Your Word, bring understanding and wisdom to each one. Meet with us here in this place as we study your Word, O Lord, and influence each one of us to be more like you. I praise you for it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Verse 22, chapter 2, the book of Acts says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Not only talking to men, but men were the typical form of the address that is common in that day. But I submit to you that we could put, People of Searsport, hear these words. God wants us all to hear. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, before we go on to how he explains all of this, reminding us of the fact that what God is saying here, through the Spirit of God, is that Jesus Christ was already, long before this world was begun, before he created it, he was, by God's foreknowledge and a determined purpose, crucified. It was God's will. God's plan. That almost sounds too hard to believe. Why would God do such a thing? Why would he have to be crucified? Why was it already planned by God for that to happen? Well, first of all, it tells us as well that God was not surprised by any of this. It was already his purpose and plan to allow it to happen. And the only explanation that we can have is from the word of God, which Peter is going to explain. But I just want to remind you that it was indeed God's sovereign will that he should die on the cross at the appointed time, in the way that He had to die according to the Scriptures. There are so many Scriptures that point to this. You can go to Isaiah 53 and you can read where it was appointed for this one to suffer. He was made to suffer for you and for me. All we who have gone astray. We've gone, each one, to our own way. That's the condemnation of all mankind. But He... Endured the suffering, despising the shame, looking forward to the glory that would be His when He would be raised from the dead. The crucifixion was necessary, but also the resurrection was absolutely necessary as well, because without the resurrection, we have no reason to exist as a church. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Read that passage carefully. Paul tells us that if Christ had not been raised from the dead, our faith is in vain. But he was raised from the dead. And what we have here is God's absolute authority and determined counsel and foreknowledge that he should be taken by lawless hands and put on a cross to die, to be crucified. When Jesus hung on the cross, remember his words at the end of the time that he was hanging on that cross, where he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, in the Aramaic language. It was a direct quote of Psalm 22. The beginning verse of Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus was pointing those who were present to that psalm. Do you know why? Because in that psalm we see the crucifixion in all of its ugliness portrayed by David a thousand years before that crucifixion took place. That Psalm talks about the fact that they circled around him, wagging their heads, saying, He saved others. Why couldn't he save himself? That was recorded in Psalm twenty two. They pierced my hands and my feet. That's what happened on the cross. That's what was recorded in Psalm twenty two he mentioned psalm fifty three of uh, isaiah fifty three rather there are many many others psalm thirty nine talks about the fact that they gave me vinegar to drink. all over the old testament word of God we see evidence of that which Christ himself had accomplished on the cross it was God's will. But notice what he says here you have taken by lawless hands. In this particular passage we see both the sovereignty of God and the free will of man demonstrated. God never overrides man's freedom to choose. But He uses man's freedom to choose to override man's freedom to choose. I don't know if that's well explained, but that's basically as best as anybody could ever possibly come up with for an explanation because there are so many people that say, well, God is sovereign, therefore there is no free choice. That's not true. It's written in this passage and many, many other places. Somehow, God reconciles both together in this place that we call the Word of God. But here, in this passage, he's talking to the Jewish nation. And he's saying, you killed him. You crucified him. You're guilty. But are they the only ones? No. Rome was guilty as well. The Gentiles were just as guilty as the Jews. It was Rome that put him on that Roman cross, That was not the method that the Jews would use to put somebody to death. But they had no choice. They were under Roman law at the time, and Roman law forbid them to do anything regarding capital punishment. That was the only thing they could not do with regard to their obedience to the law of God, the command of God. That was Roman authority, and Rome took it very seriously. So, yes, the Jews were guilty, but so were the Romans. But friends, it doesn't stop there. It's not just the Jews that put Jesus on the cross. It's not just the Roman soldiers that put Jesus on the cross. I put Him on the cross. You and I, both, all of us, put Him on the cross. You understand the depth of meaning here that we're speaking, that we all, because of our sin, are responsible for His having to go to the cross to die because He did it so that... Our sins could be forgiven. The plan of God. The Lamb of God from the foundation of the world was sacrificed. The perfect Lamb. Without blemish. Without spot. Without sin. On our behalf. Our substitute. And it was one of the favorite words of the theologian, efficacious. It was absolutely all that was needed. That's why Jesus said, it is finished. The work that was needed for the salvation of every soul was accomplished at that moment when He spoke those words. You crucified Him. And again in verse 24, but He goes on to say that God raised Him up, having loosed the pains of death Because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Isn't that an amazing thing? What Peter is saying is there's no way that he could have stayed in the grave. He had to be resurrected. That's a profound statement for the Jews to hear. They knew about resurrection. They believed that there would be a time of resurrection. But they had no clue about this kind of activity by the foreknowledge and perfect will of God that His own Son would go to the cross, die on that cross, be buried, and then three days later be raised again. This was new theology to them. This was brand new. They had no clue about any of this. This is why the church has come into existence. Because there is a New Testament. And it's in line with what Jeremiah had said in chapter 31 of his great prophetic book. Jeremiah 31 says that... God, speaking through Jeremiah, would make it so that there was coming a day when He would give a new covenant. And in that new covenant, He explains in Jeremiah, that He would Himself replace our heart of flesh, our stony hearts, with a new heart. And He would put His words in our hearts. That was partly fulfilled in this day of Pentecost. 50 days after Jesus was raised from the dead, He put a new heart in many souls on that day. He proclaimed, He is risen from the dead. And that resurrection is God's acceptance of what Jesus has done for us. And again, without the resurrection, we are hopelessly still in our sins. Thank the Lord. Praise His name, for He has done marvelous things for us who believe. Well, verse 25 says, the explanation of what He has just told them. There's a reason that Peter explains it in this fashion. That Jesus had died. He was delivered by the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. They crucified Him, put Him to death, and God raised Him up. Those things had to be proved by Peter to this Jewish audience. And so he does another... Attempt at quoting the Old Testament Scripture. I shouldn't say attempt because he hits it, nails it right on the head. He knows the Word of God very, very well. And he uses the Word of God, again, as a basis, the biblical basis, the only true basis for any doctrine is biblically given. He says, David, in verse 25, says concerning him, concerning Jesus, Concerning that one who was crucified and raised from the dead, I foresaw, and he's now giving verbatim, Psalm 16. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Psalm 16. Beautiful psalm written by David. It's a prophetic psalm. It is a psalm that's not just about David, although David wrote it, and it is a very personal psalm from David's perspective. However, David himself could not have fulfilled all of what was spoken in this psalm. Now, Peter says, David wrote it, and it was indeed by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Peter calls David a prophet, and he certainly was. He was also king. And as a prophet, he spoke truth, the Word of God. It points to what they believe to be the Messiah, the one who was to be sent by God Almighty in the days when He would judge the world. That day has come. Although it's not just a 24-hour period of time, my friends. It is an era, an epoch, that began on the day of Pentecost. And it continues to this very day. But take note of this powerful thing that He is doing. He's saying, this that you have seen, this which I have just spoken, was necessary because it was from the Word of God given prophetically. So let's look exactly at what Peter is saying here with regard to this psalm. He explains it in the following verses. He says in verse 29, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So in first century Jewry, they knew where David's tomb was. David was put in a place of rest. His body was put in this grave, and it is there, according to Peter, At that time in man's history, over a thousand years later, they could visit that tomb and say, there's David's tomb. That's where he was laid to rest. Now today, you can go to Israel, and I don't know if anybody has been to Israel, but there is a place where many Jews consider to be the place where David was buried. There's a shrine that they go to that place and pray on a regular basis. They count it as David's tomb. It was discovered or assumed to be a place sometime during the Renaissance. There's no verification of whether or not it was David's tomb. As a matter of fact, many archaeologists believe that it certainly was not there. They don't have a clue. But they knew in that day, in Peter's day, they could go to that tomb and they recognized, okay, that's where David was dead and buried, and there's no evidence that His body is not there, according to what Peter is saying. It's still in the grave. So that's contradictory to what Psalm 16 had been saying. Because again, you look at it, it says in verse 27, "...for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption." He can't be talking about himself because his body remained in the grave and everybody knows that anyone who has been buried is going to decay over time and their bones will be all that will be left of any evidence of their having existed. His flesh saw corruption. But David is here proclaiming in Psalm 16 that God will make sure that this one that he is talking about will not see corruption. How can that be? The resurrection. That's the only explanation. And it is the truth. He says in verse 29 again, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. But he's not only going to speak of David here, he's going to speak of the greater David, the one who is known as the Messiah, the descendant of David, the one who would, according to the scriptures, sit on David's throne forever. It's recorded in the scriptures. That this would be so. And we see it in many different places. Verse 30 says, Therefore, being a prophet, again referring to David, David was a prophet, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him of the fruit of his body, find that in 2 Samuel, find that in Psalm 132. There is plenty of evidence that what God has spoken to David, he intended for it to come to pass. That David was promised a covenant. That David was told that one from his loins would sit on his throne and remain as king forever. It wasn't Solomon. It wasn't anyone who followed after Solomon. Most of those kings were not good kings. Only a handful were. But in that Psalm 132, it talks about if they sin, God will judge them for it. But there's yet coming one still from David's loins who will sit on David's throne forever. And that's who Peter is referring to here. Led by the Holy Spirit, understanding that David spoke of the Messiah, he says these things, therefore being a prophet, verse 30 again, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of the body, his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on the throne. Of David, He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. It's interesting to note, by the way, that when Jesus died, we all accept the fact that he was buried in a tomb, a tomb of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. He was placed in that tomb, and he was there for a period of three days, and then, Everybody assumes that somehow his followers rolled back that stone and he was revived because he hadn't really died, but he was only drugged into a stupor of some kind that put him into a coma. And when the stone was rolled away, the fresh air came in and he was awakened and he was able to stand and walk out of that tomb and he hid himself from anybody else so that everybody would think that either they stole the body which they, of course, did not, or that He was indeed raised from the dead. So now you've got two choices. You've got people who said, He was raised from the dead. He lives again. He died, but now He's alive. And others were saying, His, his, his disciples came and rolled away the stone. i got to tell you that that's not possible. That stone was way too heavy for them to do that. And they were frightened anyway. They wouldn't have done that because they feared for their own lives. In those days before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit they were not fearless as they would be ultimately after the Spirit came upon them none of them would have had the courage to go there because the Roman God was still there on the morning and we're told in the gospel records the evidence is so clear I don't think that it's necessary for me to go through all of the details every one of you knows this It was not possible that they could secretly go to the tomb and roll that stone away without the Roman guard knowing it. And the Roman guard wouldn't have let them do it because they were under an obligation that said, if you fail in your obligation, you will be put to death. So when everybody thinks that perhaps the body was stolen, it's only because they refuse to accept that the body was raised from the dead. And if the body was raised from the dead, then they've got an accountability issue. What are we going to do with regard to this obvious miracle? Well, we're going to say there was no miracle. We're going to deny it. And that way we can go on living in our sin. And we don't call it sin anyway. It's life choices. We don't have a God that's so angry at people that He would make us to do things His way. We don't have a God who sets moral standards that we don't want to live by. We don't believe in a God who would do such things. So, that doesn't mean anything. (laughs) It doesn't disprove anything. God is still God. What they believe can't change the truth. And the truth is, as you all know, He is alive. He lives today. He reigns today in heavenly places, seated at the right hand of God. That is where He is, and He has ascended into heaven, just as the Word of God declares, and He will return to this earth just as the Word of God declares for His church. Actually, He's not coming to the earth. He's coming in the clouds for His church. And we'll go up to meet Him in the clouds. And we will be there with Him forever and ever, always with our Lord. But He is coming back to this earth later. And it's then that He will judge this earth. So all of these things are true. All of these things are recorded for us. All of these things are what we believe. And Peter is here saying, look, people, Jews, all of them, every single one of them here were Jewish or perhaps a couple of Gentile proselytes, but he was addressing the Jews, the men of Israel. Remember, the church in those first days was largely Jewish. It would only change many, many months later. But here in Jerusalem, Peter is proclaiming these wonderful truths. He would raise up Christ to sit on David's throne. That was the purpose. And in verse 31 he says, He, foreseeing this, David foreseeing this truth, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. So David saw, with a limited ability to see those things that were yet future, just like it tells us in the book of Hebrews, that they didn't really understand all of what they were writing, but they looked for that which is yet to come, in anticipation by faith that it would be so. That was the faith that David had. That was the faith that all of the Old Testament saints had looking forward to the day that these things that were spoken would indeed be fulfilled. And here, the fulfillment of this great prophecy in Psalm 16 has come. And Peter's recognized that. And he says in verse 32 that Jesus, God, has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. And now, by the way, this is the second time he says God raised Him up. God the Father raised up Jesus Christ. You know also it said elsewhere in the Word of God that the Holy Spirit raised Him up Do you know also it says in the Word of God that Jesus Himself raised Himself up? They three are what we call the Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Word of God, no. But it is implied in the Word of God very, very well. And it's important for us to realize that God is a triune being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They all are referred to as Deity. In fact, when you go all the way to the, back to the book of Genesis, when you see the words, let us make man in our image, he's not talking to angels there. He's talking to himself. There are no angels who were involved in that creation process. And he confirms that in the next passage, where it says, in the image of God, he created man and woman. In the image of God. Not in the image of God and angels, but in the image of God. Let us make men in our image. All throughout the Scriptures, we see the constant recognition of God being a triune being. That's why we use the word Trinity. Yes, it's true. It's not a word you'll find in the Word of God. Neither is the rapture. But it's there. It's obvious. It's true. Because God does tell us so. Paul says, let God be true and every man a liar. That's the way I stand on this issue as well. God's truth stands as truth. Well, going on, he says, verse 33, therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Now he's going back to an explanation of the fact that all of this was done and you have heard and seen these things in order to understand that it is exactly as God intended for it to be. That these things are happening for a specific reason so that you can know that there is salvation made available to all. Take a look again in verse 21. Verse 21 of this same chapter where he says, it shall come to pass, and he's quoting Joel here, it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. All they need to do is to accept the truth of this death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as the one who would fulfill all of the prophecies relating to the one they called the Messiah. He has done this. And this outpouring of the Holy Spirit and this message that he has given here with regard to his explanation in Psalm 16 are a very, very solid proof of what God intended, that anyone who believes shall be saved. In verse 34 he says, For David did not ascend into heaven, No, he didn't. He's still in his tomb. But he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now he's quoting Psalm 110, a beautiful messianic psalm. They recognize it as such. Psalm 110 talks about the fact that the Lord, Jehovah God, said to my Lord, my Adonai, and wait a minute, remember Jesus when he actually quoted this same verse? He was telling the Pharisees and scribes who were challenging him. When David said, the Lord told my Lord to sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him son, and he does, how then can you call him Lord. To the Jewish mind, that made no sense. Because no Jewish man would ever refer to his son as Lord. I have two sons. Neither of them am my Lord. I have one Lord. And so do they. David recognized another Messianic psalm that this one would be recognized as The Lord. And it's the Lord, Jehovah, who says to the Lord, the Son, sit at my right hand. That's where He is today. So He says, therefore, in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly, without doubt, without doubt, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The word Christ is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word Messiah. It means sent one. So what P- Peter is saying is that he is both Lord, Adonai, ruler, one that is deserving of our submission in every detail of our lives. He's both Lord and Messiah, Savior. And by the way, you may remember, Jesus is also a transliteration of the original Hebrew word, Yehoshua, which means Jehovah saves, or Jehovah is salvation. All of these things, he's pointing out to this Jewish audience who believed in one God, who believed in the fact that there would come a day when, The Messiah would indeed come and would indeed sit on the throne of David. They had no clue about these things that are being presented by Peter. This is brand new stuff. But he's using the Word of God to demonstrate, to prove that though it is new for them, it is always, it has been in God's plan. His purpose, His foreknowledge becomes a reality. And it's through His Word that He proves it so. Verse 36 says, Therefore, coming to a conclusion, this is what He is saying has been given. He's proved it. The evidence is there. This is what God has done. He's poured out His Spirit. He's shown that Jesus was indeed, yes, crucified, but raised from the dead in fulfillment of the Word of God. Now He says, Therefore, that means, listen up, That word, therefore, is there for a reason. It points back to what he just had said. It says, because of what you have just heard, now listen to what you are needing to understand about what your response should be. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Oh, what shall we do? Have you ever asked that question? Were you in conflict of soul when you were seeking to know the truth? And when the truth was revealed to you, had you been asking the same question? What am I to do? I've been presented with The truth of God's Word. Now what's my responsibility? How do I attain to that which God intends for me to attain? How am I to become a believer in what Jesus Christ has done? How am I to accept the offer of salvation that God has given? What must we do? Peter gives the answer. Then Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent. That's what you must do. Repent. Remember the word metanoia, repent. It means turn around 180 degrees, go in the opposite direction from which you had been going. They were religious men and women. They were devout Jews. But Peter is saying, look, you're going in the wrong direction. You're not understanding what the Word of God has said. Turn around and go in this direction. This is the way to life. This is the way to salvation. But not only that, he says, repent and that every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Stop there. Are you saying that, Peter, are you saying that you need to be baptized in order to be saved? There are some who teach that. We do not. It is not biblical. You need to take a really good hard look at the original language in order to get a complete understanding of this. And I'm not going to take the time to get that deep into this study today. But understand this. Peter is not saying that you need to repent and be baptized to be saved. What Peter is saying is you need to repent to be saved and be baptized to show that you are indeed saved. That's what baptism is for. I believe it is a demonstration of what has already occurred in your life. Salvation has come and you're willing to be baptized to show all who are present that you are now a believer in Jesus Christ. So Peter adds this, and be baptized, in this passage. And again, go back to verse 21 of this same chapter where he only gives the fact that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Also, later on, we're going to see in many places that there is no information given with regard to needing to be baptized in order to be saved. Every time, everywhere else in this New Testament book of Acts, we find salvation has been received by faith because they have repented from their sins. Baptism is important. It's not an essential for salvation. That's not what Peter is saying here. Please don't get that confused. It is something that we all should be wanting to do. But note also that he says, if you repent in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter is saying, look, you all have the evidence of what the Spirit is now doing among those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Take advantage of it. And if you believe, you receive. What do you receive? You receive the Holy Spirit. How is it manifest? Oh, that's a whole different topic. And we'll get into some of that as we move forward. But suffice it to say that it is true. For now, just rest in this assurance. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have done so, then you have been come, become born again. You have been regenerated. By whom? By the Holy Spirit. He has come in to dwell in you. You are His temple. A holy temple. A place where he resides. That happened when you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. There are times when we're told, and I believe it's a very important thing: be filled with the Spirit. Over and over again, we see that as well in the Word of God. Paul tells us, matter of factly, "Don't get drunk with wine, but be ye." Filled with the Spirit. That's important. It doesn't happen at conversion. He's talking about a subsequent filling. He's talking about the fact that you can ask for more of what He has already given in order for you to do His will, to work in these last days for Him. We need the Spirit of God. Don't let anybody tell you that you don't need the Spirit for Your life of faith. It is so, so very wrong to say the Spirit is not needed. That's a slam in the face. That grieves the Holy Spirit. That hinders His work. That limits His power. I don't want to do any of that. I want this church, this servant of God that you see standing before you, to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we, all of us, can represent Him in truth, in power, and demonstrate to this world by shining brightly that light that He has given by the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to live for Him, to represent Him, to be His ambassadors, to be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God, to be overcomers, to be more than conquerors in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has begun a new thing in you. Let Him complete it. Be faithful to what God has called you to do. And when you try to do it in your own strength, remember, without Him you can do nothing. That's what he's saying here. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you live for Him all the days of your life because He has made it so. Lastly, he says, and Peter said to them, For the promise is for you, in verse 39, And to your children, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. I submit to you, although there are many who say that this pouring out of the Holy Spirit no longer applies to the church, it only applied to those in the first century when the apostles died, the gifts of the Spirit became out of use in the church. The reliance on the Holy Spirit has been replaced by the reliance on the Word of God. That's blasphemous. Look at again what he says. The promise is to you, the Jews then, and to your children, the next generation, and to all who are far off from every point on the globe, as many as the Lord our God will call. Does he say? Until the apostles had gone? As many as the Lord our God will call. Has he called you? Has he called me? Is he still calling men and women today? If you think not, then you may as well take this book and go home. He wants to fill us. He wants to use us. And He wants to bless us with the promise that He has given in that first century, still available today. Pour out Your Spirit, O Lord, on us. And prove Your Word, I pray, in Jesus' holy name. Pray that prayer. And believe it and trust in Him for it. Finally, we look at the very last few verses in this chapter, and it is now the response of what they had been told they must be doing. It says in verse 40, And with many other words He testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received His word were baptized, and that day about three thousand souls were added to them. Take note, they received his word, and then they were baptized. He says then in verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. These are wonderful things that are spoken here by Luke as he writes this wonderful testimony of the power of the church in those very first early days of the church. They were with one accord. They believed. They experienced. Accepted, they received, they were willing to take that risk in a very Jewish culture that would not accept them. They knew that there was persecution ahead. They knew that they would not be found in favor to those who thought differently. In fact, as it turned out, they were persecuted. They lost their jobs. They lost everything. Those members of their family who did not believe completely distanced themselves from them. They were isolated, but yet they were growing on a daily basis. Why? Because of these four things. They continued steadfastly in their apostles' doctrine. They continued steadfastly in fellowship. They continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread together and in prayer. Oh, how important it is for us to be in prayer for one another and with one another. Ah, Friends, prayer is so needful, especially in these last days. I encourage you to get involved in some kind of prayer ministry, either if you want to join our prayer team ministry that we have or join those who meet together in various places on a regular basis, like on Sunday morning the men will come together and pray before the service. The women are praying on Monday afternoons. Let this church become a praying church. Let this church become a church where fellowship is so very real and very important for all of us. Get connected to one another. Be able to build the relationships that you should have with God and with yourselves. Let Christ be the center of every relationship and there will not be any dispute. There will, be not, there will not be any uh, dichotomy. There will not be any kind of distancing that should never happen in the church if we fellowship with one another in the way that God intends for us to do so. Breaking of bread, eating meals together, it also implies not only just eating meals, but the Lord's Supper. How meaningful is that to us? Look at how meaningful it was to the early church. It was identifying with Christ. It was communion with Him in a very special kind of way. When you, in that day, broke bread with somebody, You became one with that person. When you handed that person a piece of bread, it was like saying, I'm part of you, you're part of me. We're connected. That's what body ministry is all about. We're connected, people. Paul talks about the body of Christ in that very fashion. We're all joined together. Each one of us are members of the body, fitly joined together. God has a purpose in mind when he brings these people who are present here in this place together here so that we can minister to one another, we can help one another, we can pray for one another, we can fellowship with one another, we can encourage one another, we can laugh with each other, and we can suffer with each other when suffering is experienced by any. Finally, my brothers, listen to what Peter says, verse Forty-three. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all, as everyone had need. So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and in breaking of bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the people and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So 3,000 souls came to the Lord on that one day of Pentecost, that first fruits offering unto the Lord, a harvest had begun. And as the church continued from that day forward, there were many people who were being added to the church daily as the Lord chose. He is the one who adds to the church. I'm grateful for that. He doesn't make it so that we have to bear that responsibility. How many souls have you saved today? Well, I haven't saved anybody because I don't really know how to do that. Don't worry about that. It's not you who saves. It's God who saves. It's God through His Holy Spirit who draws the unsaved to Himself. That's what happened to you. That's what happened to me. You had nothing to do with it. I'm grateful for that. That takes the burden off of me. And he's more than able to carry that burden on his own. I'm glad of that. But take note, they were praising God and finding wonderful joy. The expression of their faith was real. And it was a magnet that drew others. That's what we should be doing. We should be shining the light just like they did. We should be faithful to the calling that God has put on our life to represent Him as His ambassadors. We should be trusting in Him to do what He alone can do. And friends, if we don't do that, will He be able to say to all of us, well done, good and faithful servants, in the end. I challenge each of us, I challenge myself, that I and you be faithful to His calling so that when we do stand before Him face to face, and we will, when we stand before Him, let it be that we not stand before Him uh, ashamed. John warns us of that. It's not My plan, I hope it's not yours either, because I do want to stand before him and hear him say the words, well done, good and faithful servant. I do want to know that I have run the race so as to win and fought the fight that he has placed before me willingly to know the fellowship of his suffering, the power of his resurrection. I want so much to please my Lord. I hope that's your your desire as well. Let it be so, my friends. Let it be so in Jesus' name.